It's PR Darlings, a podcast all about the dark arts of public relations, publicity and all things media. Given we have a paying audience who wants quality journalism, you know, we have a hard paywall at The Australian. It means that bar's pretty high in terms of me taking the time to, to tackle something and, and go really in-depth with it. And that often means that if there's a, a new story, it probably has to be exclusive to us. Join us to explore the world of modern communications and how to build better relationships with media. Anyone on the street could be picking up The Australian and reading one of my stories and has to be able to understand what's going on. So I sort of strip back that tech and, and say, what will this actually do? What, what will it be used for? How will it be used? How will it impact society? If you want an insider's look into today's newsrooms, then come along for the ride. We're speaking to all kinds of journalists, producers and industry experts. What are the repercussions for, for journalists if they have an exclusive, you spent all this time, money and resources mm. writing a story and then you see it in a paper somewhere else or in another yeah. platform? I know some journalists, for example, blacklist that either the PR firm or you know the specific PR professional. Internally, it's not fun at all. We want public relations professionals to work hand in hand with journalists in a way that builds trust, to deliver quality journalism and stories people love. I'm Greer Quinn from Forward Communications. What time do you like a pitch? What day of the week? Overall, it's a bit of a shit show. <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's, you're uh, allowed to swear on our podcast. <laughs> good, good. Should have, should have checked first, maybe. And I'm Joe Stone from Sticks and Stones PR, and together we are your PR darlings. Welcome to It's PR Darlings. I'm Joe Stone from Sticks and Stones PR. And I'm Greer Quinn from Forward Communications. Keeping up with Season 3's News Values theme, we're going to explore another news value at the end of this episode. Today's value of timeliness is all about injecting the new into news, but it's also relevant to how we operate as PR professionals. We love our chats with media and industry peeps, and we feel, as always, we learn a heap from these deep dives. But Greer and I have also made it a mission for its PR darlings to give back to the industry that has given so much to us as well. So this is why we always like to add a little bit of learning at the end of each episode. And so some of you may be familiar with these terms from uni or from uh, learning them on the job, but nevertheless, it's good to have a refresh and explore new ways of bringing these principles into our everyday work. Absolutely. Public relations, while often misunderstood, is a profession that requires specialised skills as well as a generous serving of emotional intelligence and an attuned spidey sense, as David Skipinka pointed out in season one of It's PR Darlings. And that was a great interview with him. I really felt that kind of set us up mm. like PR is such a misunderstood industry, isn't it? Completely. So today's guest is coming on due to popular demand amongst our tech PR friends. So he's considered a rock star amongst the tech PR peeps. David Swan has an uncanny ability to turn the technical into the connectable. He is the technology editor at the national broadsheet, The Australian, and he has deep experience across startups, business and technology. Widely regarded as one of the country's top tech writers, David has taken home gongs at the Quill Awards as well as the ACSIT Journalism Awards. Before taking the top tech spot at the Oz, David was the chief technology reporter at independent IT news website IT Wire and was the deputy editor of Technology Spectator. David covers Australia's rapidly growing technology ecosystem and how it's changing the way we work, live and play. 
He writes features for the Oz, but also regularly appears on Sky News, the project on Channel 10 and ABC's Radio National. Welcome to its PR darlings, David. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with us. We know you're a man very much in demand. No, thanks for having me. Um, my NBA team just got eliminated from the playoffs, so I might be a tiny bit flat, um, <laughs> but I'm going to try and, and, uh, try and we'll keep be, myself up a little bit. We'll be kind. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you start by telling us what you see as key to making tech stories interesting? Like what makes you say, yes, this story is for me? There are a few things and, and everyone has their own sort of um, take on this, which is, you know, I suppose why the industry is so interesting. One thing might be news to, to some person and, and not to another. Um, a couple of things. I think one is that it really needs to tell a human story. I think I'm a technology editor, but the tech in and of itself isn't inherently interesting. It's sort of how it's going to be used or, or that human aspect of it. Um, so I like to sort of uh, humanize things where I can. And, and you know, it's it's not a difference between a five gigabyte hard drive or an eight gigabyte hard drive. It's like, what what will that technical stuff actually be used for? So I think the human aspect's important. Um, I think, you know, and I think you flag, we might talk about this a little bit later, but exclusives go a long way. If it's, you know, commoditized, um, it's something I'm less interested in, but given we have a paying audience who wants quality journalism, you know, we have a hard paywall at the Australian. It means that bar is pretty high in terms of me taking the time to, to tackle something and, and go really in depth with it. And that often means that, you know, if there's a, a new story, it probably has to be exclusive to us um, for me to then dedicate the time to, to produce it. So um, exclusive is big. A human element is big. Um, and I think just people often confuse sometimes, um, we can get into this a little bit deeper, but PR and, and um, news are just sort of different things where, you know, some some people want kind of an advertisement and, you know, just the fact that they've maybe released an app update or something like that. And we really need a news, a news hook and that has to be a really genuine thing. I think readers are pretty savvy and, and know when they're being fed more of an ad or a PR pitch, um, there has to be a really genuine news hook there. And as I said, that's sort of different for everybody. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where you kind of know it when you see it. So what? how do you measure that news hook? Because there are a couple of things that you are really specifically looking for. It's interesting. We used to, um, I cover a lot of startup um, news. So tech is obviously a really broad remit, um, but I cover uh, startups pretty specifically within that um, and really enjoy that. Um, but we used to do, what we used to do is cover a lot of capital raises and they were really sort of easy announcements of a company raising $5 million or $10 million. And it makes for like quite an easy headline. And, and, but I felt a bit like a robot writing them. And I think readers didn't get a lot out of them either because it wasn't, it was a milestone for the company, sure. But um, it sort of just felt very repetitive. And I think also potentially, do- also potentially not um, as easy for someone to put themselves in the shoes of a company that's mm. just scored a hundred million in venture capital too. Maybe a little bit unrelatable for people that are reading it. Yeah, a hundred percent. I don't delve into the comments section too often, but sometimes <laughs> when I do, you'd have people saying, "Well, you know, 
so what? What does this actually mean? Um, or not even understand really the concept of, um, you know, venture capital funding and, and startup funding. So I think I'm changing my approach now and we're going deeper. And so I'm doing fewer stories probably than I did. Instead, the funding announcement might be halfway through the story and it still might be in there um, as an aspect, but we might lead instead with the big picture of what this company's vision is. And that's way more interesting than raising $5 million. It might be that they want to change the world in some way. Um, And I think that's more interesting for readers as well. Yeah, interesting. As PRs, um, we're sometimes mm. given, I mean, you think that you get sent boring stories. We're, we're one <laughs> layer behind that. So sometimes yes. we are given quite dry briefs and it's our job to find those newsworthy nuggets mm. um, so that we can make our clients stand out among the sea of media releases that are coming through to your inbox. Um, something that strikes me with your writing, and you have touched on it just now, is that you always manage to bring this human interest element into your reporting. Um, do you have any tips on doing this? I mean, even if you can take a step back, if uh, if you could put yourself in a PR's shoes, how can mm. we tell that or capture that story better so that it's more interesting by the time it gets to you? Yeah, I think sort of stripping back the tech from it is really important. And it's important for me too as a journalist for the Australian newspaper where the audience is very generalised and it's sort of, you know, I used to write for a technology news website and that was more I was writing for IT professionals. So I could use jargon and get away with it and people would understand what I'm talking about. And now anyone on the street could be picking up the Australian and reading one of my stories and has to be able to understand what's going on. So I sort of strip back that tech and, and say, what will this actually do? What, what will it be used for? How will it be used? How will it impact society? Um, and the other thing too is every founder I interview has an interesting story about how and why they founded the company. So sort of like a superhero origin story a little bit with Batman or Superman where it's like that's often the most interesting bit is how they came up with the idea, how they got started and how they persevered through. There's always a lot of... Um, hurdles to jump over when you're especially with startups it's like you know 90 percent plus of them fail um and so how did you get to the point where you're still standing that's awesome and you know just that founding story is often more interesting than the current you know fundraise or the current um tech that you're releasing it's like the perseverance of, of getting to this point so i think i like that the the hero story is the narrative Mm. i like that yeah, that's that's what I'm yeah, always. Yeah, it gets so neglected in. a little bit, I think. I love the founder story as well. I think that's always so intriguing. And you've done a whole lot of stuff recently: Canva, Afterpay, Airbnb, just to name a mm. few. The list goes on. What do you see as the common um, theme for all these business leaders? What is the thing that really stands out? Mm. Their common attribute. I think it's a um, just this like really overwhelming optimism that you feel when you're talking to these executives. Um, And sometimes it can be a little cringeworthy almost (laughs) just how their vision for this world that they're building. Yeah, it's and it's really infectious um, and you can just feel it. And it's very different. Like it's kind of jarring sometimes because in the newsroom, not that we go into the office as much these days, but when we do, journalists are more inherently sort of, Cynical, Cynical, I suppose. Yeah. 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 And and just sort of question everything and you know, and that's a really healthy we have a really healthy skepticism, I think. 
which is important. Yeah, in the words of Shania Twain, that don't impress me much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But but, but when you have, you know, whether it's Afterpay or Canva or Atlassian or any of these guys, Airbnb, um, it's, it's the total different vibe of just this really rampant optimism about the world despite, you know, whatever's going on around them they're still you know it's 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 you can just really feel it and it's you know it's amazing yeah because sometimes when us as PRs capture that origin story sometimes I feel like maybe we're taking too much away from the journalists going on their own experience of that so is there a balance of how much we share to still make it feel like an exclusive or a discovery from the journalist's viewpoint? Do you think sometimes maybe we tell too much and it puts you off? Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. And I would add as well, like me reading what you, for example, might have written in a, a press release in terms of just the superlative language. It's like if I'm doing an interview with the CEO and he's saying it in his own words, that counts for a lot more than in a press release in terms of just, you know, hearing it from the horse's mouth goes a long way. So I think you're right. There's definitely something to um, – it's hard to know what you would withhold or sort of not um, elaborate on too much. But I know my best stories are ones, you know, where often it is in collaboration with the PR, but I've I've got some of those best lines myself from the talent. I just wanted to expand a little bit. Uh, you said before that, that anybody can pick up the, the Australian and be reading your stories these days. So do you have mm. an audience that you specifically write for? Do you have a particular type of person that reads your stories? So just to try and think from a PR perspective, you know, um, whether our clients would fit in with your audiences and therefore be stories that you want to write? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'd say I don't have an imagined audience in my head or the concept of my audience is so nebulous to me that um, I, I, I think it would be unhelpful because like, it's just too broad, just given that anybody could be picking up and, and reading it. Um, I instead just try to write stuff that I'm happy to put my name to and that I'm, I'm proud of um, myself really, um, yeah. Can you tell us about the rhythms on of your role? So how does your day start? <laughs> um, is Monday the busiest day? What's the busiest day of your week? What what time yeah. do you like a pitch? What day of the week? Do you do weekends sometimes? Mm. I'd say overall it's a bit of a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's, you, you're uh, allowed to swear on our podcast. <laughs> oh, good, good. I should have, should have checked first maybe. Um, <laughs> that's good. Uh, I think like... It's really hard to, like today, for example, it's like I've got this um, big story that I know is going to sort of take up my day and I know that I'm going to have to decline basically every sort of pitch that comes my way or opportunity to do an interview with other talent because I know I've got to focus on this thing that, you know, hopefully gets a good run. Um, And every day is so different in that way where there are other days that are more open to, to see what's happening out there. So I'd say like, don't um, overthink it in terms of like a particular time to pitch me. For example, I think if a story is strong enough, I'll find the time, even if it's not on that particular day, because like today I probably won't even be able to go into my emails really. But, you know, I'll, if the story is strong enough, it's not a particular day that will get me. It's like I will um, I will come to it. Um, in general terms, like, yeah, I don't work on weekends, for example. Um, 
email is just generally best because um, I think texting and calling is okay if something's really urgent, but just in general, otherwise, like I have about 200 unread texts on my phone and just my, I think the nature of journalism at the moment or the industry is that there are so few of us and, you know, every year I think the pendulum swings further towards PR, um, which, you know, I don't have a problem with necessarily. It just it just makes our jobs harder every year in terms of there's fewer of us to be able to cover stories. So we get increasingly swamped with pitches. Um, and I'd love to be able to, like, respond to everything, but I just don't have time. Um, so and, and I'd ask just people to respect, I guess, um, you know, like my text and phone where it's like, if something's urgent and really important, then use your judgment to use those channels. Otherwise, you know, email me and then you can follow up by email as well. But then if I haven't replied after the second one, then, you know, go elsewhere. Um, we had a request from one of our previous podcast guests, Kelly Baker. So she's the editor of Home uh, at Home magazine, another News Corp publication, to have a bit of a deep dive on exclusives. We touched on this before, but can you just unpack for us what an exclusive means mm. to you as a tech journalist and your expectations of PRs who are offering those exclusives? I mean, I would imagine some would be worldwide launches of products or stories. Yeah. I would say... Uh, overall like as an over overarching thing to be really transparent I think when I've had things go wrong in the past is when people haven't been and it just leads to um, yeah that just leads to issues so like above all else just be super transparent and say look for example you might pitch me a story that's a global announcement but I have the Australian exclusive on it so it might be getting a run in the US as well um, but you know to me to me, an exclusive is at least that I have the Australian local um, exclusive because we think of our rivals generally as being, um, yeah, local publications, the AFR, um, SMH and The Age. Yeah. So that could be any publication, even a smaller, more niche tech outlet, for example. Yeah. So if, if for example, um, you've pitched me an exclusive, but then a small tech news publication <laughs> also runs it, that's not okay. In, in my books. It's as well as the bigger ones. It's everything, absolutely everything. Yeah. I don't know where that's it. I mean, it's one of those things as well. People would have def- different definitions, but to me it's it's either exclusive or it's not really. Um, and, and just be really transparent of, yes, we're going elsewhere in the US or wherever it is, but if you just tell me in upfront, up, uh, upfront about it, then I can sort of handle it accordingly. Yeah. So from a PR's viewpoint, if we're offering an exclusive, this can be like a bit of a pain point for us. We we really want that yay or nay as soon mm. as possible. And this can be tricky if we don't hear back, but we've said, you know, we're offering it and it, and, and it's just kind of left hanging there. So, mm. and then we're often under pressure from our clients who maybe don't understand the ins and outs of these conventions. And mm. we may also have a number of moving parts, um, maybe less so for uh, print, but say if it was a TV story and we have a case study and a location and we've got to get people at a certain place mm. on time. Um, so it can be really hard um, to coordinate it. Now, that's totally on us. That's our problem, not a problem for the journalists to manage. So it's just for context. Have you ever had an experience where you felt that you've been let down by PR when dealing with an exclusive? Exclusive, For instance, the other day we saw a journalist tweet asking PRs not to offer an exclusive to one news outlet while sending the same story out on an embargo to other journalists. I mean, 
Joe and I probably know the answer to this, but yeah, we just wanted to deep dive into some of those nuances. And even sometimes they'll say, okay, this is an exclusive, but it might be Mm. an exclusive access to that case study, but the story by definition isn't totally... Yeah, I'll say a few things. I mean, one, I'll go back to my point before where it's like, just be really upfront. And then there are no issues. I think people try to be too cute sometimes, right? And they sort of say one thing to one journalist and then one thing to another and then it ends up being a lose-lose for everybody and then the story doesn't get a great run anywhere and I think just be really clear about it and, and I don't have a problem for example with some someone sending me an exclusive and then it being under embargo elsewhere as long as there's like enough time after mine's run for others to be able to run it I think that's okay and you know as journalists, um, broadly speaking, uh, we're all we're all friends, and um, you know it's a small industry. So I think you know people, generally speaking, honor embargoes and and treat them with respect. For example, it's all sort of part of the the game a little bit. Um, where I've run into issues before is yeah, people trying to be too cute. So like sending me an exclusive, um, and we've agreed to run it, and then I've found out that it's yeah run on arrival publication at the same time and it's like well that's not an exclusive and that's just more probably in confidence or something i don't know if it's you know there's what the, are the, it just yeah sorry what are the repercussions for for journalists if they're you know they have an exclusive you spent all this time money and resources mm. writing a story and then you see it in a in a newspaper somewhere else or in another yeah. platform what kind of happens to you guys i know some journalists for example um will like blacklist that either the PR firm for a time or you know the specific um, PR professional for sort of for that Um, internally um, it's not fun at all in terms of like our editors have have been into you know and fairly so as well like come down on us um, for for that result being like similarly if if say we miss a big story um, and you know it's just part of the the way it works but editors will say like why did you miss that one you know so there is just like that internal pressure to make sure you're sort of not missing and I think it's it's healthy you know we're competitive um that's of just course, the, it's yeah. a bit like a sport sometimes yeah um, it's not a bad just, thing yeah exactly I'd say overall um just it's a respect thing and a trust thing and you know if a PR person screws me over um, then I would just am less likely to trust them and their judgment in the future. Um, and it's unfortunate, but it's like, you know, that has happened. Um, yeah, it probably happens a few times a year to me in terms of some sort of mix up with an exclusive or something. And it just means I'm less likely to want to deal with that person next time or open their email. It unfortunately tars everybody in the industry as well. Mm. So, you know, the next PR that you speak to, you probably... Uh, be a bit more cautious with and less forthcoming so yeah it it certainly spirals doesn't it yeah and I'd I'd also just say I have overwhelmingly positive things to say about the PR industry in general and working with um, my colleagues in PR it's like those interactions are overwhelmingly positive and good relationships and not every journalist looks at PR as positively as I do and I think that's a bit bit unfair um so overall, like, you know, there's a few bad apples, but I'm not letting it spoil anything. 
Mm. So we often reflect that um, most of the media conventions we learnt on the job, Joe and I, um, and we never really had anyone sort of sit us down and explain what an embargo or an exclusive um, was. I wonder if you think that um, this is something that PRs and journalists um, should be taught. I mean, Joe and I couldn't even really mm. remember when when we, I guess, learnt it and maybe we learnt it as journalists who were being embargoed to or um, having yeah, early that on in our careers. Offered, offered to. So, we, yeah, we learnt from the receiving end. And, yeah, we've, we've sort of noticed that um, some PRs, they don't know the difference, for instance, between an off-the-record or backgrounding and those sorts of nuances. Mm. Do you think that um, there is a place to actually be, I guess, more formally taught these things? Yes. Yeah. And I think often what you see then is that people only learn when they stuff it up and they, (laughs) they, uh, if they don't know what the term means and then it takes like something colossal, for example, like, you know, if there is something, uh, off the record, but then if the PR doesn't know what that is, that concept is, then a journalist reports something that's off the record and it just blows up in everyone's face. I think, I don't know what, what form, like what forum or what form that, um, advice should take but it should be drilled in as like a 101 um, thing 100 it's they're really crucial um, concepts for our for our industry there was a uh, report by medianet um, which is a, a media database company it's called the media landscape report and it interviewed a thousand journalists and it found that only 94 percent uh, of journalists these days re- um, respect embargoes um, is there pressure on journalists these days? to uh, be the first with the news and to break embargoes? Or again, is that something that you feel really strongly about that journalists shouldn't do that? Firstly, I'm surprised there's a thousand journalists left in the industry. That's <laughs> positive. Oh, awful. Isn't that terrible? Good. Good. Oh. Um, didn't know there's that many still floating around, so it's good to hear. Um, That's good. I don't know, 94% sounds pretty high to me. Um, uh, I think it's the six percent that admitted that they didn't respect them. I think that's that's yeah. something. Yeah. Look, and and that speaks to just this hardcore faction of our industry, and I'm not not one of them, but I respect. I mean, you know, I respect enough their opinions to do what they want, but you know, there'd be that six percent who uh, either hate working with PRs or just like ignore them and say, "I'm just going to do my, you know, journalism, and I I don't need you, I don't need to work with you," and you know, I don't know. How, how you guys perceive it but like my perception would be that would be about six percent of journalists it's not many but there are a few of those hardcore ones who say look i don't i don't need pr as a function of my job i'm just going to go out and you know chase my own stories um without you um yeah we were, we were just wondering if um the embargo has maybe had its day joe and i were reflecting that um mm. we'd often receive media releases from ministers or government um officials mm. And they'd be on an embargo, particularly if you're doing, I guess, morning radio and you'd see the embargo Mm. and then you could run the story first thing. I I wonder if politicians are doing that anymore. If, you know, maybe you can't get away with it if you're a politician. Maybe you could as as a private enterprise, but just with the pressure these days that every everyone's kind of been outed for these behind the scenes conventions that were previously unspoken about. I think that's a fair point. Um, I think embargoes 99% of the time are probably a waste of time and make things just more difficult than they need to be. Um, I think either really you want your news out there or you don't, right? Um, I I think they make sense maybe just purely for sensitive announcements, whether they're sort of ASX announcements, 
and I know people got in trouble before for leaking me um, ASX announcements before they've got gone to the ASX. So uh, I don't yeah, get them anymore, even, which is good. Even, yeah, and you can't even do that on embargo. <laughs> That's still actually, um, I yeah, think, breaking, exactly. breaking a few laws. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah. don't send me those because I'm not yeah. allowed to receive them. <laughs> but in ge- more general sense, like, um, yeah, there is, I'm sure, sensitivities whether it's transactions occurring or whatever where it's like well we have to embargo it until after this time because the thing the ink hasn't been dried on the paper yet of this deal um but broad more broadly if you're just trying to be again too cute about well it's an embargo for you because we're getting a run an hour earlier it's like you either want to get a run or you don't so i think i think we should try to move towards a a post embargo world if, if we can Mm. Um, I wonder whether sometimes it's about giving a journalist a bit more time. Do you like them when you get more time to write a story? So if you embargo the story until next week and then then you can do your case study and you can talk to all the 10 different people yeah. that you want to? Yeah, that, that that's fair. Um, yeah, but and I mean, I mean, it's still called an embargo, I guess, but even that is you could just say, you know, we're planning to go a bit more widely with this next week. Um, I guess that is an embargo really. But, um, yeah, I do appreciate that time sometimes, especially like I said, we're trying to do higher quality, deeper dive stuff these days and maybe we did before where our KPIs internally are more around subscriptions that we're driving and performance of each individual story. And if something's quite light on, I think that reflects in the numbers um, and the high quality stuff I do sort of ch- tends to perform better and drive subscriptions and drives traffic in a way that the, the really simple stuff doesn't. So um, giving me more time to then, yeah, get more voices in there and do more of that groundwork is helpful. Mm. And you could call that one of three things. You could call that an exclusive if you had that extra time. Um, mm. I sometimes call that first dibs <laughs> yep. because it's yep. it's it's kind of an embargo. It's kind of an exclusive, but the idea yep. that um, a client is going to be happy with only a single run and that's the end. They're they're not mm. <laughs> they're not going to yep. be happy with that. So um, yeah, and you try to as a PR, you try to go okay. What's the best opportunity here for the client? And um, I imagine the Australian is at the top of um, yep. a lot of a lot of corporations lists. What do you see as the most challenging aspect of your job? Is it actually keeping up with the trends? Because I would imagine tech would just be constantly changing. <laughs> no, that's easy. I mean, just, you know. Easy. I'm sort of, <laughs> uh, easy is probably not the right word, but it's, I don't look at that as a challenge. Like I look at that as sort of just my job in terms of um, being clued in and sort of having my finger on the pulse in that way where it's like if I'm not interested in doing that, then I should just find a different profession because the whole whole thing the whole like nature of what i do is about sort of talking to people and being connected to whatever's happening in the tech world so that's sort of a core responsibility rather than a challenge i think the challenge is time management um and just um as i said (laughs) my weeks are a shit show and you know i love it and it's really fast paced but like you know if i could boil it down it's like my inbox is probably my biggest challenge and just like getting hundreds of emails a day with various pictures and stuff and uh, I'm sure I'm leaving a lot of good stories on the table but it's like I just don't have time. Mm. Do, you, do you prefer um, dealing with PRs who work in-house or with PRs uh, from agencies and when it comes to agencies do you prefer dealing with the bigger or the smaller agencies? 
I don't think I have a preference either way on on either. Um, a good story is a good story, and a good PR professional is a good PR professional. Um, I, I haven't noticed um, any like significant difference in my dealings with either of those categories. It's sort of yeah, it boils down to the story and the if the person is really a helpful, um, smart person that I'm dealing with or unhelpful. Mm. So if you were going to do some crystal ball gazing for us, what kinds of tech companies do you think are going to succeed in the next five years? Um, you know, what do you think are the trends? And I'm, mm. I'm really interested in tech and journalism, actually. You know, will we still have newspapers in, well, five mm. years? I want to say five years, but it might be 12 months. I think newspapers will survive. I think, you know, they seem every 12 months or a couple of years are sort of a death knell of, um, you know, newspapers are dying out. But I've been extraordinarily, extraordinarily resilient even through the pandemic when, you know, we couldn't go to, well, I'm in Melbourne, but we couldn't go to a news agent or, um, you know, they the newspapers are still, still around. Um, so I think they'll be around, even if they're not printing as many as they once did, I think there is that place for them for, I would I would say, at least another decade um, in, in physical form. Oh, um, good. This is good news. I'm optimistic about journalism broadly just, I think humans have an innate need to know what's going on in the world around them and what's happening in their, their neighbourhoods. Um, so I think the business model right now for journalism is still pretty broken and, um, you know, we're getting some tech giant money from Facebook and Google, which is good, and News Corp is hiring um, 100 journalists this year, which is really positive. Amazing. Um, yeah, but we still haven't found a way to convince uh, the population that journalism and good, a good journalism should be paid for. Um, so that's sort of an uphill battle. And I, I'm just optimistic sort of the business model will get sorted out um, one, one way or another, but we're not, we're not there yet, obviously, because it's still a, a bit of a struggling industry. Um, and in terms of tech companies, um, you know, <laughs> I wish I had a crystal ball for that would, and would be absolutely a, a millionaire if I could be. Um, but in general, I think these tech these tech startups that are becoming giants in Australia, like Atlassian and, and Canva and and um, Afterpay to an extent as well, are, are now creating the entrepreneurs that are going to build the next co- companies coming through. So like the, pe- the engineers who have been at Atlassian for, for five to ten years will get itchy to, to start something of their own and they'll, be, they'll have plenty of money. So because these companies have done so well, they'll be able to, to take their paycheck, um, say, look, I've given you five to ten years. Now it's time for me to go out on my own and, and do my own thing. So we're going to see these sort of baby Atlassians and baby canvas sort of springing up as being the next generation to sort of follow in their footsteps. Um, and it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a fun, fun next few years. I absolutely love your optimism um, and and well done for maintaining it in this uh, world of cynicism in the newsroom. <laughs> so it's, it's no mean feat. Um, well, this has been a truly illuminating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on to It's PR Darlings, David. Thanks very much for having me. We did promise you that we were going to explore the timeliness news value at the beginning of the show. 
Timeliness is all about why are you telling me this now? What puts the new into your news? Note, this doesn't mean the story has to be entirely new, but some new information has to have come to light that makes the story timely and or relevant again. This could be the case with a new analysis or new data from an older report, but you need to be able to emphasise what's new. So sometimes to keep getting a company publicity, you've got to be strategic about manufacturing new news all the time. So we often will call this uh, newsjacking as well. So you will jump on something that is currently running in the news, currently being published in newspapers, and it might be using those statistics from that old report, but you can make it new again. Absolutely. So you can do, you can also manufacture, I guess, uh, how to keep yourself newsworthy. You can do this through constant innovation in your business. Um, So new product launches, entering business awards or other awards, but also piggybacking, like you said, on um, or newsjacking on current events. But it's also how quick you are to respond as a PR operative as well. So a story might be timely at the beginning of the day, but it loses its potency by the afternoon. So they've been talking about it all day and it's all kind of done and dusted. So as communicators, we've got to get all our ducks in a row. And sometimes that might be putting the pressure on a CEO to get up at 5am to do an early morning radio interview or a Skype interview or TV or something like that. So there you go. You've been hearing about the news value of timeliness. Think about how you might use it in relation to content, current events, but also the way that you operate as a PR professional. Thank you for tuning into its PR darlings. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share, subscribe and review. And also keep an eye out because Joe and I are going to be talking on a panel for Mumbrella 360 in July. And that's in Sydney. And if you'd like to attend, please get in touch with us or any of our socials. We do have a speaker's discount. See you next time on It's PR Darlings.